Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in. We are here with a very exciting episode as an addition to the atrial fibrillation series for cardio nerds. And this is all about the atrial fibrillation guidelines. We are lucky enough to be joined here by two of the authors of the guidelines, very specifically the chair and co-chair of the recently released atrial fibrillation guidelines. And we're going to be asking them all about the new updates and recommendations that they've provided in this document. I'm joined here by my co-chair of the atrial fibrillation series, Colin Blumenthal. It is my absolute pleasure today to introduce Dr. Jose Hogler. He is a man who wears many hats and is a professor of medicine at UT Southwestern, where he is the medical director of the Cardiovascular Clinical Research Center, holds the Elizabeth Thaxton and Ellis Batten Page Professorship in Cardiac Electrophysiology Research, and serves as the fellowship director of the Cardiac Electrophysiology Program. Additionally, he is the director of the Electrophysiology Laboratory and Device Clinic and the Invasive Cardiac Laboratories at Parkland Hospital. Dr. Hogler is the chair of the 2023 ACC-AHA-ACCP-HRS guidelines for the diagnosis and management of atrial fibrillation, which we'll be talking about today. He has also been involved in many other guidelines, including being the vice chair on the ACC-AHA-HRS guidelines for the management of SVT. Dr. Hogler, welcome to Cardio Nerds. Thank you so much. Uh, happy to be here. I do wear many hats, but writing guidelines is one of the most fun things I do. One of the things I love the most. So thank you. I'm happy to be here. And I have the privilege of introducing Dr. Mina Chung. Dr. Chung is a professor of medicine and an electrophysiologist at the Cleveland Clinic. She currently serves as the director of the Cleveland Clinic Center of Research Excellence in Cardiovascular Translational Functional Genomics and director of the AHA COVID-19 Research Coordinating Center. Her research focuses on the translation of genomic findings in atrial fibrillation into new therapeutic strategies. She is the vice chair of these 2023 ACC, AHA, ACCP, HRS guidelines for the diagnosis and management of atrial fibrillation and served on numerous other writing committees, including as chair of the 2020 AHA scientific statement on lifestyle and risk factor modification for reduction of atrial fibrillation. Dr. Chung, it's an incredible pleasure to have you on CardioNerds today. Now, we have a lot to cover, so let's jump right in. The new guideline document introduces a new staging scheme for atrial fibrillation. It still includes the traditional classifications of paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, persistent atrial fibrillation, and long-standing persistent atrial fibrillation. But it presents these as a progression disease that's categorized within stage 3. Paroxysmal atrial fibrillation is stage 3A, persistent is stage 3B, and long-standing persistent is 3C. Additionally, stage 3D characterizes those who have no clinical atrial fibrillation after successful catheter ablation. There were also two stages that were added before the diagnosis of atrial fibrillation, labeled as those at risk for atrial fibrillation, and then stage 2, those with structural or electrical changes which may directly precede atrial fibrillation. So, Dr. Chung, what led to this change in staging and what findings in particular might differentiate stage 2 from stage 1? Thanks for that question, Kelly. Really, the prior classification of AF was really based mainly on AF state, as you can see. And although it was very useful, it tended to emphasize AF once it was diagnosed, and it focused mainly on therapeutic interventions. So this new classification recognizes AFib as a progressive disease that requires different strategies at different stages from prevention 
to screening, to rating rhythm control therapies. And it also highlights the need to address it at its earliest stages, including emphasizing prevention, risk factor management, and screening for patients at highest risk. Also, we recognize that patients might transition between different substages of AF. And in terms of stage two versus stage one, stage one represents patients who may have modifiable risk factors like obesity, lack of fitness, alcohol use, diabetes, hypertension, and sleep apnea. And stage two is pre-AF when they've had evidence of structural or electrical findings that further predispose to AF like atrial enlargement, frequent atrial ectopy, or short bursts of atrial tachycardia or atrial flutter. Thank you so much for that explanation, Dr. Chong. And it's really cool to see how this has evolved into, you know, talking about prevention and management even at early stages. Dr. Hogler, can you expand a little bit about stage three? How are patients classified? For example, are they classified by the longest known episode of AFib or by the current episode? So, For example, if you were previously classified as persistent or longstanding persistent AFib and say you had restoration of sinus rhythm, for example, with a cardioversion, and after that you are paroxysmal, do you switch between the different types of stage three? It's actually by the longest episode in general, but what Nina says, the emphasis here with the stages is to emphasize the complexity of the disease, like you said. You know, this is a chronic illness, it's not cure, so it's less essential that we think about it in very specific terms, but more that we understand that it's likely to progress and early intervention, and we want to reverse it. That's why you want patients not to progress to persistent if possible. So we see that in those terms better. And the other thing is that Mina said is If you look at the figure on the stages, it's also the fact that you can intervene and you can, even somebody who is persistent, you can eliminate persistent AFib, at least control it if you intervene aggressively, but also include in the management of your patient other interventions like lifetime interventions, risk factor modification, for example. So that's the most important thing to think about, but it's actually the longest episode. That's really helpful. Thank you. And sort of in a similar line, I was also interested in the stage 3D of classification for successful ablation of atrial fibrillation. Dr. Hogler, how do you envision this portion of the staging impacting treatment plans? And should patients with prior ablations be reclassified into stage 3A, B, or C if they have recurrent AFib? after an ablation? No, you know, 3D successful ablation, right? Patients under control because then you have to think about to manage those patients differently. You know, you think about to maintain sinus rhythm after you don't have successful ablation, you need to concentrate in different aspects. So I, I'm not sure that reversing the classification helps. Mina, you want to comment on that? It's a good question, but At the end of the day, you think differently when you have a successful ablation. Even if your patient remains in sinus rhythm, you want that sinus rhythm to remain. So you really want to tackle that and also be aware that your patient can be at risk of recurrence and repeat ablations might be necessary. So even though he's in sinus rhythm, doesn't mean that you reverse the classification. Right. That classification 3D was new. And, uh, You know, it's a special category just because there is controversy over what to do with anticoagulation 
because there is a recurrence rate after your catheter ablation. So if you think about the A, B, and C, paroxysmal, persistent, longstanding, persistent, then the person after ablation may not actually fit any of those three if you think that they don't have any detectable AF. But in reality, they may still be at risk for thromboembolic or stroke because AFib may recur. So it's kind of a separate category that allows us to talk about you know, what to do with patients post-ablation who don't have evident AFib at that time. Thank you so much for clarifying. And you know, to jump off of what we've been talking about, as you know, we've alluded to, these guidelines really talk about taking early intervention to either prevent atrial fibrillation or to prevent progression of paroxysmal to persistent atrial fibrillation. And um, one section that I read with a lot of interest was the section that did provide specific guidance for lifestyle management to prevent this development or progression of atrial fibrillation. It seems to put atrial fibrillation more in line with other disease processes like coronary artery disease that are chronic conditions that progress over longer periods of time and have historically had a major focus on primary prevention. I'm sure a lot of our patients will be glad to see that abstaining from caffeine now has a class three indication for no benefit in most patients. Now, pivoting off of that, Dr. Chang, which lifestyle interventions had enough supporting evidence to warrant a class one indication for interventions that improve rhythm control and atrial fibrillation? So Kelly, I'm glad you talked about primary versus secondary prevention. You know, we wanted to highlight that for especially lifestyle risk factor modification or what we're calling LRF. And we can target primary or secondary prevention. So primary prevention is trying to prevent AFib before it occurs. And then secondary prevention applies to patients who actually have a diagnosis already of atrial fibrillation. You're trying to decrease burden or prevent progression. So it's very difficult to show in randomized studies effect on primary prevention. But there are a lot of observational and, and prospective studies even that have studied some of these. So the class one recommendations for primary prevention targets weight loss for obesity, morphtivity for physical inactivity, unhealthy alcohol consumption, smoking, diabetes, and hypertension. And then for secondary prevention, that is for you know, patients who have AFib, there are class one recommendations for weight loss for patients with AFib who are overweight or obese, and that means a BMI of 27 or more, and ideally targeting at least 10% weight loss. And that comes from some of the studies uh, coming out of Australia from Dr. Prash Sanders' group. And then um, moderate to vigorous exercise training to a target of 210 minutes per week. Smoking cessation and minimization or elimination of alcohol consumption, for which there is randomized data on, and blood pressure control. And that's very well explained, but I just want to emphasize that we were purposely uh, prescriptive during this guideline because, you know, you can tell a patient you need to exercise and, you know, what does that mean? You know, we wanted to tell the patient precisely how much to exercise, like Mina said. The same thing with weight loss. Be very prescriptive, very precise in the recommendations we give. And for some patients, that might not be attainable, but it still is a goal that is being shown to be effective in clinical studies. So we want it to be precise and prescriptive beyond just advising for uh, healthy behaviors. Well, as, as a clinician, I really appreciate the value of that. 
And to hone in a little bit on one of the prescriptions that you provided, how should we counsel patients about eliminating alcohol in terms of your know, number of drinks per week or um, even type of alcohol? The thing about alcohol, the problem with alcohol is that there's no safe uh, threshold if you have AFib. And you have to have these kind of discussions with the patients. But what we call is moderation or elimination if possible. That's what we talk about. The fact is that some patients get AFib because of excess alcohol consumption. They drink a little bit too much. That's an easy part. There's some other patients who get AFib if they drink a little bit. So that's the kind of conversation you need to have. For many patients, alcohol is important. You know, they work hard, they enjoy it. You know, it's part of their lives. They enjoy going, have dinner with their family. So we tell them to moderate it if feasible, if possible. So that's why we use the word moderation as well as elimination if possible. Right. I think this was based on a couple of studies, especially there is a randomized study of patients who drank 10 or more drinks per week. Patients were randomized to abstinence or continued alcohol use. And there is a significant reduction in AF burden in the people who are randomized to alcohol abstention. And I think they decreased their alcohol consumption over the group to about an average, about two drinks per week. And there were a significant number who did abstain and that was the target. That being said, as Jose says, we don't want to totally impair quality of life if that's important to some people and the alcohol use. But there are a lot of observational uh, studies that do show that even very low levels of alcohol use are associated with atrial fibrillation. I hinted at the recommendation against recommending abstaining from caffeine. Um, Dr. Chung, I know there's been a lot of literature about the role of caffeine in multiple cardiac conditions. So I'm sure that this was an area you looked at closely. Can you expand any more on that? Yeah. So this is where there were a lot of studies looking at uh, caffeine use for primary prevention. And in that kind of a situation, caffeine has not been shown to be a risk factor for increased AF. And in fact, as you alluded to, caffeine use in a lot of these types of primary prevention studies for cardiovascular disease AFib, may even be a little protective. And that being said, there's a study where almost up to a quarter of people who have atrial fib identify caffeine as a trigger. But there was also another end of one study that was done by Greg Marcus's group where caffeine was not found to be a trigger. And one of the thoughts on that was that maybe people are feeling that caffeine is triggering AFib because they feel pounding palpitations. So it's a, a little difficult to rationalize that. But basically, I think you use common sense and if patients feel that caffeine is making their atrial fibrillation worse, it's, it's very reasonable to avoid it. Dr. Chong, thank you so much for going through that. Just reading the guideline recommendation specifically, it's clear that a thought went into the wording of how to interpret those data into a recommendation for clinicians. Yeah, I'll, I'll read it. It says, for patients with atrial fibrillation, recommending caffeine abstention to prevent AFib episodes is of no benefit. Although it may reduce symptoms in patients who report caffeine triggers or worsen AF symptoms. Dr. Hogler, how do you take data like that and you translate it into specific guidelines for clinicians? Yeah, and, and I'm glad you asked me that question because 
the listeners need to know that the process is quite robust for guideline development. The writing committee meets and gathers, and we look at the evidence together. So we need to reach out a consensus based on the evidence. This is an evidence-based document, but also takes into consideration uh, individual patients and not every patient fits the same mold. Uh, We don't try to impose also universal view if it's not necessary, for example. If there was a recommendation on harm, for example, that would be different. So we tried to find language based on consensus and evidence, and that caffeine recommendation exemplifies that. There's also great emphasis on shared decision-making and the patient's individuality. That's something that has progressed over the years in guideline development. They're taking into consideration the patient's individual needs the same with alcohol. You would tell the patient, you need to drink less if possible. We're not telling you you should stop enjoying your social life, for example. So that goes into consideration when we create these recommendations. And this is a very good example of that. Thank you. That's great insight to have. Now, I just wanted to switch gears here for a second and talk about stroke prevention in patients with AFib. We all, of course, are familiar with the chads vask risk stratification score. As discussed earlier in the series, the CHADS-VAS score falls short in terms of accurate risk stratification in certain patient populations, for instance, those with significant renal dysfunction. The new recommendations guide clinicians to counsel patients about stroke prevention with oral anticoagulation based on their calculated stroke risk percentage, regardless of the score used. And there are multiple scores that we can talk about, allowing clinicians to choose the stroke risk calculator that best fits their patient. Dr. Hogler, what are these risk thresholds that clinicians should keep in mind and how do they correspond to the CHADS-VAS score that people are most familiar with? Yeah, remember the guideline didn't get rid of the CHADS-VAS. We acknowledge that the CHADS-VAS is the most uh, used score, the, the most validated score for that matter. And also, it's important to remember that the CHAS-VASC also has been used in most of the clinical trials that determine when drugs or interventions were efficacious or not, like the DOACs in stroke prevention, for example. So we did not get rid of CHAS-VASC. But on the other hand, we also know that we need to evolve and we need to have conversations in the future too. So the first goal was to open the door to conversations. For example, in the future, we might start thinking about considering a fit burden. And this is in the future. We don't know. We don't have an answer today. But we might need to consider a fit burden duration, for example, as a risk factor. And the CHAS doesn't include that. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is what you just mentioned, that their scores are not reflected in CHAS fast, like renal dysfunction. And in that sense, you can do the Garfield score, for example, that includes renal dysfunction and other things like dementia. That's why we gave the reader a CHAS-VASC of 2, or a, which is an equivalent stroke risk per year of 2% or so as a class 1 recommendation for anticoagulation, and a 2A when the risk of stroke is between 1 and 2%, which is equivalent to CHAS-VASC of about 1, uh, more or less. So that's why we wanted to use an absolute risk instead of the score to allow flexibility in case people look at those risk levels in a different fashion. A good example, for example, is hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, the risk of stroke 
has been determined to be in the neighborhood of 3% per year, regardless of the CHASVA score. So 3% per year is very high. And then you have a recommendation to use anticoagulation accordingly. So the utility of using an absolute risk expands the options to the clinician and the patient. I really appreciate you going over that. And then you had mentioned that there are other scores, obviously. We're not getting rid of, of the CHASVAS by any means. But Dr. Chung, which risk scores in particular should clinicians consider adding to their repertoire in addition to sort of the tried and true CHASVASC? And then what specific situations or populations might a clinician think to use one of these other risk scores? Great questions. Thanks for asking that. In the guideline, there is a table that lists some of the most studied risk scores. And many of these include more factors that may be useful for patients who have low CHADS VAS scores. So those that may be the population where the patient is in a gray zone or an intermediate risk. And as Jose said, a couple of these include renal dysfunction, like atria uh, is another score that has more age categories, includes renal function and proteinuria. And Garfield has 16 questions and includes mortality, bleeding risk, and renal function, smoking. There's an MCHADS-FAST score that was validated in an Asian cohort. It might identify Asian AFib patients who might get benefits from stroke prevention. And it also lowers the threshold for age 50 to 74, and those patients get a point. So we envision that these additional risk scores might be beneficial to use in patients who are struggling with uh, the decision because it, it may provide additional stratification. And also, there's an, another table in our guideline that lists some factors that increase the risk of stroke. And Jose mentioned some of them include taking into account perhaps higher AFib burden or longer duration, persistent permanent versus paroxysmal AF, obesity, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, poorly controlled hypertension, the renal dysfunction and proteinuria and enlarged left atria. Let me add to what Nina said also. We want to open the door. We don't have all the answers today, but we want to open the door to future research. For example, it might be that in an Asian population, some of these scores have been Publish for the Asian population, and maybe they get validated with additional research, and they find that they have different risk age categories in those populations. So that's why we use an absolute risk instead of a score per se. But also, like I said, future research and future considerations, and that can grow and evolve accordingly. Yes, I can certainly understand how this guideline can apply far into the future. One future research has come up with continuously improved risk scores to assess that percentage risk um, for our patients. And I think I, along with all of us here, are eager to see where the data, particularly regarding atrial fibrillation burden and stroke risk, move in the future. I'm going to change directions briefly now to ask you about a patient from the CardioNerds Clinic. This patient highlights one of the other issues in risk stratification when it comes to initiating oral anticoagulants. Ms. Flickers is 60 years old. She has hypertension as well as a pacemaker that was implanted for symptomatic sinus node dysfunction about five years ago. Her most recent device interrogation showed three atrial high rate episodes, and the longest one of these lasted eight hours. Um, Dr. Chung, based on the available evidence, should she be prescribed oral anticoagulant therapy? That's a great case that highlights some of the controversy in the area. So this patient has 
atrial high rate episodes that may be subclinical, even though the longest one was eight hours. So she has a chads fast score of two for female hypertension, so in the intermediate risk group. But the treatment of subclinical AFib detected by devices has been controversial. And uh, we have some recent randomized trials that were reported recently, including NOAA and Artesia. And NOAA was negative in terms of benefit. And Artesia, which used uh, apixaban, showed a reduction in stroke with apixaban, but had higher bleeding rates, although many of these patients were also in aspirin. In any event, this patient in our guideline would have a class 2A recommendation for anticoagulation. And I would actually favor anticoagulation, but bringing in other risk scores or considering those other risk factors that we just talked about would be useful. And certainly shared decision-making with the patient would be very important. But that no after these guidelines were finalized. So we think that the recommendation remain on target. So the guideline says for over 24 hours that we would treat based on clinical risks such as chest you've asked scores. And that has a 2A recommendation. For five-minute to 24-hour episodes, there may be benefit, especially if the longer episodes, if we find out in the future that they're stratifying in artesia or if they indicate a higher propensity to progress to the uh, longer you know, 24-hour or more episodes. So for that five-minute to 24-hour episodes, anticoagulation has a 2B recommendation in the guideline. Yeah, and the thing about it is, you know, Artesia corroborated that that the risk of stroke is much less. For example, if you look at Artesia and Noah, the average ASVA score was four. So you will think that historically, if you think a ASVA score of four, you will think a four percent or so risk of stroke. But what you saw in Artesia and Noah were about one percent risk of stroke, and in that sense, the risk versus benefit ratio changes quite a bit. And in that sense, also, the number needed to treat and prevent a stroke becomes really high, 250 to 300. If you look at the meta-analysis, we're talking about 300 patients. So it's not that you should not do it, but it becomes more nuanced. And there's still things that we don't know. Do we talk about 24 hours a single episode? Or we talk about total burden during the recording period? I'm glad that we got it a little bit closer to Artesia Noi, even though we did not have those studies available. And again, I want to bring up the concept of guideline process, because hopefully what we're going to start doing is editing these guidelines, revising them on a more frequent basis, and then we'll have Artesia and Noah in the next iteration of these guidelines. So, Thank you so much for, for going over that. I feel like in morning meeting, we have, we have a lot of discussions and this exact discussion has come up over and over again, just numerous times. And this is such a, a hot topic. It's really, really interesting to hear all of the, you know, considerations and trying to put all of this together into sort of one cohesive recommendation, even, you know, if some of this stuff was not necessarily published before the guidelines were done. So I wanted to also talk about mechanical stroke prevention, specifically percutaneous left atrial appendage occlusion. So there's long-term registry data in patients with contraindications to long-term anticoagulation that has shown high procedural success and lower than expected stroke rates with left atrial appendage occlusion. Several randomized trials have also demonstrated non-inferiority to warfarin as well as DOACs for efficacy 
and safety outcomes in patients with non-valvular AFib. As a result, percutaneous left atrial appendage closure was upgraded to a class 2A recommendation in patients with contraindications to long-term oral anticoagulation. Dr. Hogler, how would you describe the role of percutaneous left atrial appendage closure in light of the new guidelines and what is still not known? Well, we did upgrade the recommendation from 2B to 2A from the prior guideline. We had very robust discussions in the writing committee. Should we upgrade it to one? In general, you really want more than one high-quality randomized study to give a strong class one recommendation of superiority, right? And we were getting almost there with the left atrial occlusion devices where we're not quite there yet. There's also the fact that the technology is evolving, the devices are getting safer. Also, the FDA approved, for example, the use of that instead of anticoagulation. So we have to come back to that too and expand the number of recommendations accordingly in the next revision. The thing about it is that the majority of the patients nowadays are selecting the use of Watchman as a preference as opposed to for the reason of having a contraindication. And that gets a little bit more dicey because, like you said, most of the data is in patients who are not candidate for anticoagulation. So the answer to your question is we're getting there slowly. I think we're upgrading. And uh, we had a nuanced approach to different recommendations for patients who have contraindications to anticoagulation and who have also a preference of using the watchman. We're not quite high of a recommendation there yet. But as the data evolves, we're going to keep looking at it and monitoring and, and see what changes we do in the future. Yeah, I think this is super interesting. And I guess maybe there's sort of a difference between what you could recommend in a guideline versus maybe how people interpret it and what they do in clinical practice. What another thing that I was wondering is how you would sort of describe like a quote unquote contraindication to long-term oral anticoagulation. I know I've seen sort of a wide variety of application of sort of that specific phrase, you know, anything from someone who's a professional boxer, for example, to what is more traditionally thought of as as long-term contraindications for people with significant previous bleeding events. So how do you sort of envision that being interpreted? That's hard because one thing that I need to emphasize here, it don't sound like I'm making an excuse, but I'm not, we cannot put every possible case scenario under the sun in a guideline cannot happen. We don't have the resources nor the number of pages, you know. Having said that, we like people to feel that these guidelines is a one-stop shopping for all the needs when it comes to management of atrial fibrillation. And we do have chapters and sections in this guideline on management of anticoagulants accordingly. We have a section on what to do during the surgical period, for example. And we do have section of patients who bleed when to resume it, patients who have strokes when to resume it. We have that. And we do have a table of what is really high risk and what is not. Okay, so we provide that information. There's patients who are treated, for example, who have GI bleeds that are treated, and those patients seem to be acceptable candidates for resumption of anticoagulation, whereas there are others, you know, with spontaneous uh, recurrent bleeds that seem to remain at high risk. And we also have listed in tables, for example, neurological conditions that are very high risk, for example. 
So I think we provide some guidelines, but we cannot address every possible example, as you can imagine. Thank you. I appreciate going through all of that. And as a follow-up, Dr. Chung, I'm interested in hearing where you see the guidelines heading in the future in light of data from our surgical colleagues, namely the Laos 3 trial. Might there be a role for percutaneous left atrial appendage closure in addition to oral anticoagulation? Well, LAOS 3 was considered in our guidelines. So just to remind ourselves, this was a 47 spermidating subject randomized study of left atrial appendage occlusion in patients who had AFib and were undergoing cardiac surgery. And it turned out that 80% of the patients were continued on oral anticoagulation at discharge and 75% were on oral anticoagulants at the three-year visit. And it showed that surgical LAO, in addition to the oral anticoagulation, reduced stroke and systemic embolism by 33%. So yes, I suppose for now there could be a role. However, there are studies in the future ongoing that will compare anticoagulation versus LAAO without anticoagulation. And we look forward to that. We're especially looking forward to the studies coming out that will look at DOEX versus LAAO. So I think this is a rapidly progressing area. Uh, may take a few years to still come out, but look forward to the modification of those recommendations and future updates of the guidelines. If I may add, the thing about LAOs is that they provided anticoagulation to, like Mina mentioned, to the majority of the patients. So we really don't know what happens to patients who don't take anticoagulation. Maybe the risk stroke is in between. But the, the watchman data, the percutaneous approaches, there is information, right? And most patients are just getting that because they have contraindications for bleeding, for example. They cannot take the anticoagulation. That's the way this all started. In the first place, or many patients who opt to take the watchman because they don't want to take anticoagulation. So I think it's a different concept, really. That makes a lot of sense. And speaking about trials, the cardiology community has been buzzing in recent years about trials relating to rhythm control of atrial fibrillation also and the evolving recognition of the importance of rhythm control in our patients. You know, in particular, I think the East AFNET trial really pushed this paradigm shift to the forefront, you know, showing that in patients who had recently diagnosed atrial fibrillation, rhythm control strategy compared to standard care results in a lower incidence in the combined endpoint of death from cardiovascular causes, stroke, or hospitalization for heart failure or acute coronary syndrome. Dr. Hogler, how was the, the concept of early rhythm control discussed in these trials, as well as many others, incorporated into these new recommendations? And how has this changed in particular from prior versions of the guidelines? So this is the first guideline that pushes early rhythm control as a class one recommendation, okay? So that's very important. Not only that, it's an acknowledgement that, you know, the downstream consequences of AFib are coming to light, the development of heart failure, for example. Uh, downstream consequences like stroke and things like that. But also we started talking, we started creating recommendations. Slowly we get into other indications for ablation, for example, for rhythm control in patients who don't have significant symptoms, for example, preventing progression to persistent AFib. And also we're starting to have conversations and talking. Maybe in the future we'll see recommendations for preventing down the stream valvular regurgitation preventing dementia, for example, in the future years down the road. I think we're starting to see data showing that 
atrial fibrillation can have long-term consequences that's coming to light now. And some of those consequences might take years to develop. And that's where we're starting to have these recommendations slowly popping up. Of course, and we know that the longer that AFib is present and progressive, the harder it is to treat in our patients. So now the million-dollar question, what is the best strategy for rhythm control? Yeah, and the 2014 guidelines indicated that for most patients, antiarrhythmic drug therapy should generally be first-line therapy, and catheter ablation was recommended specifically either for patients who are intolerant or refractory to antiarrhythmic drugs or potentially due to patient preference for first-line therapy. Now, drumroll please, in selected patients, catheter ablation now has a class 1 indication as first-line therapy to improve symptoms and to prevent progression of atrial fibrillation. So Dr. Chung, which patients fall into this category and when should we be reaching for the catheter? Great question. And this is where we upgraded some of the indications for catheter ablation. So we gave a class one indication for catheter ablation to patients with symptomatic AFib in whom antiremic drugs have been ineffective, contraindicated, not tolerated, or not preferred. So that's like SVT almost. And uh, we also gave a class one recommendation to selected patients, generally those who are younger or with few comorbidities who have symptomatic paroxysmal AFib when they want rhythm control. Catheter ablation can be first-line therapy to improve symptoms and, as Jose said, to reduce progression to persistent AFib. For patients other than younger or who have more comorbidity, the catheter ablation is given a 2A recommendation. Also, patients who have symptomatic or clinically significant atrial flutter, we gave a class one indication and that catheter ablation can improve symptoms. The other thing that was upgraded not to class one, but to 2B was that catheter ablation uh, is, is reasonable for selected patients who have asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic AFib because it may be useful in reducing progression to AF and then AF complications. Kelly, if I may follow up on what Mina just said, I just want to educate the listeners on the process. And the reason we have these recommendations is because we review the literature and the recent studies support those recommendations. The fact is, in selected patients, ablation is superior to pharmacological therapy. That's proven. There's randomized data to show that. And the benefit is massive. The difference in benefit is quite significant. So that's why we have this recommendation, because we sit down, we analyze the data, we have randomized studies, we have high-quality studies comparing one intervention to the other. So I just want to emphasize the process that takes place in developing this recommendation is quite robust and it's evidence-based. And I think that's a perfect segue. We can't really talk about catheter ablation for atrial fibrillation without highlighting the role of this therapy for patients with heart failure. And this was already mentioned uh, just recently here. And now, you know, in terms of the quality of the evidence and everything that has gone into to catheter ablation, and catheter ablation was now also given a class one indication over antiarrhythmic drug therapy in this population, specifically for patients with heart failure. So sort of building off what we were just talking about, Dr. Hogler, what evidence most strongly supported this upgrade in the recommendation? You know, there have been a lot of recent studies that have shown improved survival with catheter ablation in patients with heart failure. And there have been many other randomized studies as well as observational studies. 
And even if some people question the mortality data, all the studies point at the same direction, which is decreasing hospitalization for heart failure, improving in ejection fraction, improving symptoms. The challenging thing is to determine the patients who are more likely to benefit because they are patients in whom heart failure is caused or exacerbated by AFib, and we call that tachycardia induced cardiomyopathy. Whereas the other patients in whom atrial fibrillation is just a manifestation of end-stage renal disease. So we have a very nice table to try to point out on those differences. But in the patient of whom you suspect atrial fibrillation is causing or exacerbating cardiomyopathy, there have been many studies that have shown the benefit and, like I said, um, clinical heart endpoints like hospitalization for heart failure and quality of life, for example. Everything points in the right direction. And then even sort of building off that a little bit more, that was, that was really excellent. I appreciate you going through this. Dr. Chung, can you expand a little bit sort of within that population on what characteristics of patients with heart failure predict a favorable response to ablation therapy? Obviously, overall, you know, the, the recommendation was upgraded, but is, are there specific things that really catch your interest within the population? And then sort of just as importantly, which characteristics would sort of describe a patient with heart failure that you think might be unlikely to respond favorably to ablation therapy? Yeah, Jose mentioned some of those factors and that there is a very nice figure table that lists some of those characteristics. So we thought that patients who were more likely to benefit from catheter ablation of heart failure, Jose mentioned those in whom you think AF or tachycardia may have caused the cardiomyopathy. And also those who may be at an earlier stage of heart failure and those who don't have any significant ventricular scar on MRI. And similarly, also looking at the state of the atrium, you know, if the MRI does have very much or have minimal atrial fibrosis, those may be more likely to respond. Paroxysmal and early persistent AFib would be more likely to benefit and compared to, you know, longstanding persistent or those that have many prior failed ablations may be less likely to benefit. And then younger patients without significant other comorbidities may be likely to benefit. So on the other hand, those that are less likely to benefit are those that have very advanced heart failure, significant ventricular scarring on MRI, severe atrial myopathy, uh, the longstanding persistent AFib, and advanced age or multiple comorbidities. Wonderful. And then, you know, just adds to what we were discussing before about the prescriptive nature of the guidelines. You're really going into detail about factors that can help clinicians to make the right decision for for their specific patients. You know, paradoxically, I noticed that this set of guidelines also places a really strong focus on the role of shared decision-making in the management of patients with atrial fibrillation. Dr. Chung, what would you say are some of the key management decisions in atrial fibrillation for which clinicians should really be prioritizing shared decision-making? Right. It, uh, you mentioned how prescriptive the guideline is, and I want to really thank and congratulate Jose for his leadership in making it as prescriptive while balancing the need for shared decision-making. So, you know, some of those key management decisions, I think, are have to do with anticoagulation and rhythm control strategies, including antirrhythmic drugs, choice of antirrhythmic drugs versus catheter ablation. 
So this is especially important, I think, in patients who have heart failure, who have significant comorbidities and, you know, those patients who have risks of the therapies. So it's very important to have discussions with those patients. Can I make a comment on this style and the process again? So we talk about, you know, heart failure, for example, uh, just a few minutes ago. And, you know, we talk about these studies and, you know, like more survival and castle AF and that kind of stuff. But don't forget that we have a whole section on AFib management. And we do that on purpose because that way the reader, the user at the bedside can reach out to this guideline opens it according to the patient description and see a bunch of recommendations that can fit. So if the patient might not be a candidate, for example, for catheter ablation for the reasons Mina mentioned, then we have recommendations for AV junction ablation, AV node ablation with IV pacing, for example, or rate control medications, targets for rate control, things like that. So don't forget that there is a variety of things you can do and everything is within a figure, for example, that you can open from the app and your smartphone at the bedside. We'll have to make sure to put a, a link to the app in the show notes. And I think we were discussing this even before we started recording that it's that kind of applicability really makes the guidelines a you know living document in a way that you have the readily accessible clinical information in the app as well as a you know dense document full of the very specific guide recommendations and the evidence behind those recommendations. Coming back to shared decision making for a moment, Dr. Hoglart. Were there specific guides included in the recommendations, specific decision guides that might help clinicians to support them on the front lines when they're having these shared decision-making conversations? They are, and we put some links into those. Most of the ones published in this realm belong to, like Mina said, anticoagulation. Their decision aids publish uh, across, you know, different platforms and across the country on the website. But if you look at it, and like I said, you know, I'm a stickler to the evidence, as you can see from listening to me. Unfortunately, there's no evidence that that have changed clinical outcomes. On the other hand, I do uh, respect and understand the importance of patient satisfaction, for example, on the patient ability to understand better and to be able to make an informed decision. So there's some clinical tools that we included in the guidelines that uh, readers can have access to, and especially when it comes to decision-making anticoagulation, and there's some data supporting that the decision-making ability of the patient is enhanced when those tools are used. Wonderful. And I've really enjoyed the addition to our discussion about the specific new recommendations for the management of atrial fibrillation, along with getting some amazing insight from both of you about the process of developing these clinical guideline documents. And I just know that, you know, a lot of time and work and effort and thought goes into those. I'm curious to hear from from both of you whether you have any advice for people who think they might want to be involved in writing such guideline documents in the future, how you were able to prepare for such a responsibility. Well, we really like to include early career people in our guidelines. And um, sometimes there are also evidence review committees, which focus very much on doing the systematic reviews or the literature searches. I think if you're interested in getting involved in guidelines, then make it known. Put that on your 
on on your profile, you know, that you're interested in working on that and what areas you're interested in working on. And it's a learning process for all of us. So the guideline process, as Jose stated, has been very robust and it's evolved. And, you know, I've learned a lot from doing it, uh, a lot on, on the process as well. So I don't think that if you're very inexperienced that it's necessarily negative. We learn it uh, as we go. There's a lot of guidance that is given to us. We have orientation sessions that teach us about guideline methodology. The way this guideline was done was, I thought, really efficient, and it was done with an amazing timeline. This is a huge guideline, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Jose, but I think it came to fruition in just 14 months from start to publication. So that's that's really amazing for a guideline of this breadth and size. And one of the things that happened was that each section group met. You know, we had weekly meetings between the leadership group and the committee members writing certain sections or all the sections. So we would meet and then to go over their section, make recommendations, and then those would get incorporated into a slightly more you know, polished version. And then we would go over that in another meeting about 10 or 14 days later with the whole committee. And that was a really efficient way of getting through this and also having more senior people helping you know, less experienced people. But I think we, we really had amazing experts in guideline writing on the committee. So that was really helpful. I think for a young person, if I may add, Kelly, also, I mean, I thank you for saying that. Um, but I think a young person would like to build, start thinking about writing guidelines, start creating expertise, pick up a field of research and expertise, engage in committees at the national level and the National Society, AHA, ACC, for example. That would be very useful, kind of practical approaches. And one thing that we struggle is with conflict of interest. So sometimes if you stay off free of conflict of interest, that's very helpful to so those are a few pointers, you know, right there. What do you think, Mina? I agree. You know, make make yourself known to HA, ACC, HRS. And, you know, the guideline committees strive to be 51% relationships with industry free. So that's a really good point in terms of conflict of interest. And every person needs to make that kind of a decision on their own. Because they're in our field, there are a lot of advantages and needs to work with industry. But you know, when you get to a point where you're willing to stay relationships with industry free, that does probably increase the likelihood of being chosen for a guideline committee. That's great insight and advice. And I'm sure a lot of the listeners will really uh, appreciate hearing this advice directly from you all. Yeah, thank you so much for this entire session and conversation. I, I can't, I can't tell you how long I've, you know, been excited about this exact podcast episode and, and going through all of this since first opening up the guidelines and seeing how just in, incredibly wonderful they were. And one thing we, we always ask everyone that I was hoping we could close out with, and we can start with you, Dr. Hogler, what makes your heart flutter about atrial fibrillation, about developing these latest practice-changing guidelines, and then finally seeing them published and, and talking about them. I imagine that's a, a very rewarding and, and gratifying process. Yes, it is. I mean, I, 
One thing is I've been doing guidelines for over a decade now. So to me, the process is what really it's important to me. The fact that it's an evidence-based approach to patient care. So that's what I like the most, obviously, working in collaboration with high caliber experts. And we have these meetings like Mina mentioned. That's also a, a source of joy. But the guideline shows the way and it shows the way it, it's upon us to do a good job. A job that is based on evidence, that is detailed, that is robust, you see methodology that is well tested. And at the end of the day, that's the, the most important thing that we helping the community by guiding on how to best manage patients with whatever condition the guideline states, in this case, atrial fibrillation. So to me, that's the most important and rewarding thing. And uh, what about you, Dr. Chun? Oh, thank you. It was a wonderful experience working with all of the outstanding experts and colleagues on the writing committee and our HA staff liaison, Sabrina Singleton Times. You know, I learned a lot and I think we all learned a lot on the committee. Being able to put this together into a working practical guideline that will help all of us take care of our patients at AF is really wonderful. I'm already using it as a reference, looking things up even though you know, we've, we've read through this several times. But it's amazing to see this come to fruition from start to publication. And, it, and the timeline that I mentioned to you, it just really speaks to the tremendous dedication and hard work of the writing committee and everybody involved, as well as the fantastic leadership of Jose Hoglar. It just was incredible. Learned a lot from Jose and everyone. And finally, I think it's also exciting that we ended the guideline with a review of the knowledge and evidence gaps in the field. So hopefully that will help spur and inspire research in AF that will further and improve the care of our patients with AF. Wow. Thank you all for joining us for this breaking news tour through the new atrial fibrillation guidelines, as well as simply a masterclass in guideline development. Dr. Chung and Dr. Hoglar, I thank you sincerely for taking the time to speak with us during what I'm sure is a really busy season surrounding the time of this document release. And I want to thank you both for providing an outstanding set of recommendations for our cardiology and electrophysiology communities. Finally, thanks to my always thoughtful and brilliant co-chair, Colin Blumenthal, for co-hosting this session along with me. Thank you so much for inviting. I was happy to be here. Yeah, thank you very, very much. It's great to be here. Thanks for tuning in to another Cardio Nerds episode. The audio editing for this episode was performed by me, Pacey Wetstein. I am an intern in the Cardio Nerds Academy, House Jones, and an MS1 at LeeCom Seaton Hill. I invite you to check out the episode page for show notes and references. If you found this episode informative, please consider subscribing to Cardio Nerds on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a review. It helps us spread the word and further our goal to democratize cardiovascular education. Finally, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed on our show and site do not reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. All CardioNerds content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by CardioNerds. Stay tuned for more engaging conversations and explorations in our upcoming episodes. And now, it's time to make like an S2 and split. Thank <laughs> you.